My name is Ben Greenfield, and on this episode of the Ben Greenfield Life Podcast. And why do we do that? It's because we think more is going to make us happy, but the pursuit of more is often what is making us miserable. Going after the perfect fitness program or the perfect diet program, you know, like in my industry, once they find God, all of a sudden, all that stuff seems to become less important because they've found something that actually fulfills. By getting rid of the excess is you start to make room. You actually increase the void. You're making room for what's truly important. And then you start asking some deeper questions. Faith, family, fitness, health, performance, nutrition, longevity, ancestral living, biohacking, and a whole lot more. Welcome to the show. You know, finding all your grocery shopping items in one place at an affordable price is seemingly impossible, at least these days. But with Thrive Market, you and I get everything we need and a whole lot more. You can shop for healthy pantry essentials, sustainable meat and seafood, non-toxic cleaning and beauty products. It all gets delivered right to your door. And if you find a price that's lower elsewhere, Thrive actually matches it. So they'll carefully vet each and every item so you can trust if they sell it, it's the highest quality available. If you're looking for meal inspiration, they got recipes and shopping lists. Finding anything you need is easy on there because you can filter by 90 plus values and lifestyles to find out what works for you, whether you're gluten-free or paleo or keto or vegan or, I don't know, a sugar addict. Uh, they probably don't have that on there, but you get what, I'm, you get what I mean. You get, they got wonderful filters. You get a shop by what you eat and what matters most to you. Over 5,000 food, home, and beauty products. So finding what you need is easy with Thrive Market. Again, plant-based, keto, gluten-free, zero waste. Thrive Market has got you totally covered. And when you join... You join a community of 1 million plus members and sponsoring family in need, all with their fast and free carbon neutral shipping, so you're bettering our planet too. You can join Thrive Market today and get $80 in free groceries. That's 80 bucks in free groceries. T-H-R-I-V-E market.com slash Ben to get 80 bucks in free groceries. That's thrivemarket.com slash Ben. All right, if you've got a busy schedule, it can be hard to get all your nutrients on the go. And even if you have time to juice vegetables or eat massive salads, you might not love the taste of dark leafy greens. And as we all know, a lack of proper nutrition can lead to things like low energy, bad moods, and all sorts of long-term issues. That's why Organifi makes it easy to fill your life with more nutrition using their delicious superfood blend. You just add a scoop to a glass of water to energize and nourish your day with carefully picked adaptogens, fruits, vegetables, medicinal mushrooms, a whole a lot of other organic ingredients with no chopping, no juicing, no blending, no cleanup. In their green juice, they have stuff like, like Moringa. That's been part of Ayurvedic medicine for over 4,000 years. It's nicknamed the miracle plant for its ability to nourish and fight disease. Chock full of vitamins and minerals and essential amino acids and antioxidants. It's often called nature's perfect multivitamin. It's detoxifying, anti-inflammatory, hormone balancing. It's an antioxidant. It supports digestive health. It's amazing. They have, they have ashwagandha in there as an adaptogen. They got chlorella from single-celled green freshwater algae, which is alkalizing and detoxifying. They've also got spirulina, beets, turmeric, mint, wheatgrass, lemon, coconut water, 11 different superfoods working together in this fantastic, convenient symphony of incredible energy boosting and detoxifying benefits. Not just one of their products from Organifi. All their stuff, you get 20% off of. You go to Organifi.com slash Ben. That's Organifi with an I dot com slash Ben. They'll get you 20% off of your first order from Organifi. All right, if you want to get the powerful benefits of higher dose, 
I'm about to tell you how. What's higher dose? This company, they make like saunas, PEMF units, red light face masks, everything you need for beauty. I've interviewed them before, beauty and recovery, really, because not only do they make this amazing infrared sauna blanket that you can get a deep sweat in, you wrap it up, it's like a teddy bear. Uh, you get sick, you get in that thing and just sweat it out. You want to just like read a book and, and be bathed in infrared the whole time. You don't have room for a sauna. This thing works like gangbusters. They got a pulsed electromagnetic field mat that combines the benefits of infrared with PEMF for this unbelievable believable recharging experience for your entire human body, which is a battery. They use 100% natural purple amethyst crystals and mesh fabric tubes across the entire mat. This really deepens the recovery of your session. They emit negative ions, very similar to what you'd find if you were grounding or earthing in nature. They even have a new red light face mask, which is a light therapy device that you can combine with things like a clay mask or all on its own. It mimics the low-level wavelengths found in natural sunlight. Thus, it boosts your mood, stimulates collagen, activates glowing skin, reduces fine lines, regenerates cells, and uh, it looks pretty freaking cool on your face, too. You look like somebody out of Star Wars. Anyways, you get your own infrared sauna blanket and PMF mat at higherdose.com today, along with that face mask. And you can use my promo code BEN, which will save you 15% off. You go to higherdose.com slash BEN, and the code that you can use over there is BEN. All right, folks, welcome to the show. I, I think this show, we should probably just make it like five minutes long because uh, it's about minimalism. What do you think, Joshua? Should we just like say a few words and lead people to their minimalist life? As you know, I'm full of pithy expressions and sayings, so mm -hmm. I guess we could just speak in aphorisms for a few minutes. Yes, exactly. Like like the, the pithy title of your new book, which is honestly why I, why I originally wanted to get you on. Because a lot of people might be familiar with your original book, which was just called Minimalism, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Our first book was over a decade ago, and it was called Minimalism. It was about finding the, the discovering what was actually important in life, how to live a meaningful life. But then this new book, Love People Use Things, is, is yes. really a relationship book. Yes, love people use things. That That's definitely a, a pithy title. And for those of you not familiar with uh, with Joshua Milburn, my guest on today's show, uh, and I'll link to all of his stuff if you go to bengreenfieldfitness.com slash minimalist. Um, he and his, uh, I don't know if you call him your your partner or your business associate or what, or, your, or just your friend, uh, Ryan Nicodemus, uh, who's, who's not on the call with us today. It's just Josh and I. Uh, anyways, uh, these guys are known as the minimalists. And they actually have overhauled a ton of people's lives in terms of allowing them to live a more minimalist life. And their work has been featured all over the place, like Wall Street Journal and Time Magazine and GQ. And they have a, um, you guys did like a whole documentary as well, didn't you? Yeah, we've got a couple films up on Netflix. Uh, the first one was called Minimalism, a documentary about the important things. And, and that really got the message in front of a whole lot more people. And then the most recent one came out this year. It's called Less Is Now. Less Is Now. Is, is that on Netflix right now? Yeah, yeah. It's out on Netflix currently. It's uh, 
It's very, it's extremely minimal. I think it's 53 minutes. Okay. All right. Well, that, that, that's, that I actually don't watch enough Netflix to know if that's minimalist, but it sounds pretty good to me. So we'll, we'll try and keep this podcast at, at least 52 and a half minutes and, and go from there. So any, anyways, uh, you guys may have heard me too. I've, I've been on, on Josh and Ryan's podcast called the minimalist podcast. And I'll link to some of those episodes as well at bengreenfieldfitness.com slash minimalist. But you know what, Josh, we've, we've hung out like what, four times now in LA, I think three or four times at least something yeah. like that. Yeah, but like, it seems I'm always getting put in the hot seat by you guys. And, and, and then, you know, I, I drink some coffee with you and then leave and give you a hug or a high five or a slap on the back. And then we're done. But I don't think you've ever actually told me kind of like your backstory of this whole minimalist thing. Like, did you just one day decide to get rid of all your extra shit and go from there? <laughs> sort of. I mean, I think it starts even farther back from that. You know, I was born 40 years ago and in Dayton, Ohio, and I grew up really poor. You know, we were on food stamps and, and government assistance, and there's a lot of alcohol abuse and drug abuse and physical abuse in, in the household. And and um, I thought the reason we were so unhappy growing up is because we didn't have any money. And so when I turned 18, I went out and I got an entry-level corporate job, and I spent the next dozen or so years climbing the corporate ladder. And by age 30, I had sort of achieved everything I ever wanted after working 60, 70, 80 hours, sometimes 90 hours a week, had all the sort of trappings of success, right? The the big suburban house with more toilets than people, the luxury cars, the, the walk-in closets full of designer clothes. I sort of had all the stuff to fill every corner of my consumer-driven life. And in many ways, you could say I was living the American dream, but it turns out that that wasn't my dream. And in a weird way, it kind of took getting everything I thought I wanted to realize that maybe everything I ever wanted wasn't actually what I wanted at all. And I knew I needed to, to simplify my life because ostensibly I was successful. The people around me saw that I was successful. And I bought all these things to make me happy. You know, the average American household has 300,000 items in it. But of course, most of us aren't hoarders, right? We we just own a lot of stuff. We, does, we, does the three hundred thousand items include like you know toothpicks or are we talking just like toys and books and like three hundred thousand seems like a a lot. It is a lot, yeah. Wow. And so I don't go around to people's houses and count their stuff. That's a stat from the Los Angeles Times. And and so what I can tell you is this: I've been in a lot of people's houses, and most people aren't what the hoarders you would see on television. Those are what we would call stage four, stage five hoarders when we talk about the continuum of hoarding. But most people in the Western world tend to be at least stage one hoarders. And there are a bunch of different signs around that, what's going on in our lives. Now, Now the question is, why do we accumulate all of these excess things? Because it'd be wonderful to have 300,000 items if it was increasing our joy, our happiness, our tranquility, our meaning in life. But quite often, those excess things are actually getting in the way of what's truly important to us. So as a minimalist, it's not about getting rid of everything. It's really about identifying what's essential, what's non-essential and value-adding, and then also what is junk. Most of the things we own are junk, and it's getting in the way of those things that are adding value to our lives. 
Okay, so I I want to get back to to how how you actually proceeded to minimize your life, but you just alluded to like this continuum of hoarding and stages. Is that an actual thing, or is that something that you guys developed as part of your your minimalist program? No, it's 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 an actual thing. So, well, hoarding is you know it's a it's a, a mental disorder, right? But we all have pieces of that mental disorder, mental disorder, right? So uh, there's another term called Spartanism. You may have heard of it, not like running a, a Spartan race, but Spartanism is the idea you can't hold on to anything. And so the other side of that, of that continuum is hoarding. And so when you look at your TV and you see people who are hoarding, those, those people have, a, they're at the terminus of that, that, um, well, that mental illness, right? They have a whole bunch of excess stuff that's scattered all over their counters and floors and attic and basement. You can't even get into some of their rooms, right? But a level one hoarder just has light amounts of clutter and and they don't have all the no- noticeable odors and all the excess stuff. And they tend to just have a bunch of clutter around their house. Well, me, I was a well-organized hoarder, so maybe I didn't have clutter strewn throughout my house, but I sort of had an ordinal system of bins and boxes in my basement and and spare bedroom and uh, in the attic and in the garage. I had a a two-and-a-half-car garage. I don't even know what that means. Now, I couldn't even park two cars in that garage. Well, why is that? Because I had a lot of excess stuff. And then you go beyond that, you go to level two, three, four, five hoarders. That's when you start to see the odors throughout the house. You see overflowing garbage and trash cans. You'll see bugs. You'll see uh, no clean dishes in the house because they're all stacked up in the sink. You'll see, um, well, when it gets real extreme, you'll see you know, the hoarding of dead pets in the freezer and, oh and things gosh. like that. Jeez. Yeah, it, but it's so it's easy for us to like sort of point and sneer at those folks. Say, oh, at least I'm not like that. Yeah, but think about it. You may never be like that, but it doesn't mean that the stuff isn't actually getting in the way. Just because you're not tripping over it doesn't mean it's not getting in the way of a, a more meaningful life. Wow. So, so you know, I, I think for me, a big part of it, and I don't know if you've really studied up much on the human psyche behind hoarding, but there, there's like this desire to be prepared, right? You know, and you know, not, not a prepper necessarily like gold buried in the backyard and, and Campbell soup cans and underground tunnels under your house. But like this idea that you, you want to hold on to certain things because who knows when they might come in handy, right? Who knows when you, when you, you might actually have a need for whatever that extra space heater or, you know, or those, I don't, I don't know that the dozen extra dark, ch- dark chocolate bars in the pantry or the waffle iron, or I just got a, uh, what did I just get an air fryer in addition to my pressure cooker and my sous vide wand and my 18 other different ways to cook. And, you know, so part of it is preparation. Part of it is having a little bit of fun and variety with, let's say, you know, how you want to make a steak. If you get to choose between a, a grill and a skillet and a, 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 a you know, a, a sous vide wand, but you know, when when it comes to being prepared versus hoarding, like is there is is there somewhere where the line is drawn or, or yeah, uh, how 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 would you how how would you differentiate between the two? 
huge distinction. One, and it's as simple as this. It's intentionality versus being unintentional with the things we consume, right? There's this term mimetic desire or mimetic belief. And that's just a fancy way to say, I don't actually want the things I want. It's someone else who wants them and advertisers or marketers or demographers or statisticians are telling me that I want those things. They are telling me my life would be better with those things, even though I don't truly believe it myself. The other side of that is, as a minimalist, I'm not a deprivationist. So being prepared can be a wonderful thing. Now, of course, we can't prepare for everything. We, we all know that intrinsically. But these three dangerous words constantly come up just in case. I think they're the three most dangerous words in the English language. And you didn't say it, but the essence of what you were saying there is we hold on to a lot of things just in case we might need them in some non-existent hypothetical future. Right. In the new book, we have these 16 rules for living with less. And one of them is called the just in case rule. Now, here's the fascinating thing. Because I would often say, I'm going to hold on to this just in case, I was still, even when I first embraced minimalism, I was still holding on to probably 10,000 just in case items. All these extra cables in the electronics drawer, the universal remote over here, or I got to have an extra pair of swimming trunks over here. Whatever it was, I had a lot of, oh, I'm just going to hold on to it. I'm not really using it. I'm not really getting value from it, but I'm going to hold on to it just in case. So the just in case rule basically says, hey, if I'm holding on to anything just in case, I can let go of it because I can replace it for less than $20 in less than 20 minutes from wherever I am. So we also call it the 2020 rule. Now, at first, that sounds like an incredible rule of privilege, right? Oh my God, I want to go around spending $20 every single day on replacing these just in case items. Well, here's the truth about it. Over the course of the last decade, since Ryan and I have come up with that rule, we've had to use it five times between the two of us. And so spend about a hundred bucks over the last decade. And that hundred dollars has allowed me to let go of tens of thousands of just in case items that would have otherwise gotten in the way. Because the truth is all of those things we're holding on to just in case. If we're not actually getting value from them now, there's a good chance we're not going to get value from it at some distant future. Hmm. Okay, so so back to your story. You were you were successful. You had the suburban house. You had all this stuff. What 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 was the light bulb moment for you? Yeah, so I've known Ryan since we were fat little fifth graders. You asked, well, you, what do we call each other? Are we business partners? Are we? Yeah, we're just yeah. We're we've been best friends for thirty years now, and we both grew up poor and in the same town, and and both climbed the corporate ladder at the same corporation at the same time. We graduated high school the same year, and you know I. Right around age 30, two events happened to me that that forced me to look around and question everything. My my mom died and my marriage ended both in the same month. And it was like getting into two car crashes at the same time. And I started just questioning everything. You know, what is why have I been defining success this way? Why have I given so much meaning to all these material possessions? Who's the person I want to become? How am I going to redefine success? And as I started asking these questions, I realized that my life might be better with less. We never stop to consider less in our culture. It's always more, 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 more followers, more money, more status, more success, more achievements, more trophies, more material possessions. I need more. And why do we do that? It's because we think more is going to make us happy. But the pursuit of more is often what is making us miserable. All those things we bring into our lives to make us happy 
aren't doing their job. In fact, the objects of our desire quickly become the objects of our discontent. I may have really wanted that thing, but now that I get it and I've had it for a while, it's becoming a burden or it's becoming outdated or it's just getting in the way. And so for my, my journey basically started with that question. How might your life be better with less? And when I asked that question, the reason that was so important is it wasn't a prescription. It wasn't like, here are the 67 ways to declutter your closet. None of us have a shortage of decluttering tips. That's not the problem. The problem is we don't understand what is enough in our lives. And so for me to get to enough, it wasn't about adding more. It was about subtracting all of the, all of the superfluous things that were in the way. And so in a weird way, as a minimalist, I actually get far more value now from the fewer items I own than if I were to water them down with hundreds of thousands of trinkets. Yeah, you, you alluded to something earlier too, that this idea of human desire being mimetic, like we imitate what other people want and that's how we choose, you know, like partners and friends and careers and clothes and where we're going to go on vacation. There, there's actually a really great book. I read it recently. I'm, I'm imagining you probably saw it. It just came out this year called Wanting, The Power of Mimetic Desire. Have you seen that one? Yeah, yeah, we had him on the podcast. Yeah, Luke uh, Luke Burgess, I think is his That's last correct. name. Yeah, yeah I'll, I'll link to that one in the show notes. It's a, it's a good read, but this idea of of you know, well, comparing ourselves to the Joneses, and if you know they've got whatever cluttering up their garage, and we happen to drive past and take a peek in and see that, and it gives us a whole bunch of ideas about things we might want. And fortunately, I don't really have many neighbors, so I don't have to deal with that so much as I have to deal with the random 10 packages of biohacking equipment and supplements and <laughs> functional health foods that just randomly appear on my doorstep every single day. And even for me, like there's a little bit of angst because it's like, this is cool stuff. And I sometimes justify the fact that I'm like an immersive journalist, right? Like my job is to try this stuff and come back to the world and report on, you know, what laser lights and, and infrared devices and protein bars work and which don't. But yet I, I find myself in many cases spending, you know, like an extra you know, hour to two each day, just digging through all this stuff that I normally, and I don't know how, what you think about this, but it's a thought process that goes through my head sometimes, whether it is a book or an article or a podcast or an audio book or a belonging, I, I, I sometimes will get something in front of me and I'll think, geez, I never ever would have been interested in this at all uh, on my own volition, right? It, it's not something I'm passionate about or or had any inkling to look into, yet because it showed up on my doorstep or because somebody's texted me that I should check this out, all of a sudden, like there's there's kind of like a little bit of FOMO if you don't try it out. And, you know, it, it, it's sometimes hard to strike a balance between living a life where you're you're kind of like curious and seeking adventure and learning new things and then also just having so many new things that you don't finish half the old things and you know the the new book replaces the stack of the 10 other books that you had planned to read and it it does get difficult doesn't it with, with and especially in the information era where we have access to be able to find out about all this stuff like it's hard yeah you mentioned keeping up with the joneses and that was a particular problem a generation ago, but it's far more pernicious than that now because not only are we comparing our lives with our neighbors, we are comparing our lives with the lives of everyone we've never met on Instagram and TikTok and, yeah. and everywhere else. And, and 
thinking, you know, what is consumerism? Consumerism is just the ideology that buying things is going to make me whole or complete. Now, as a Christian, I know that you understand that there is no wholeness in consumption and consumption and, and you're not going to get it outside of yourself. And, right. And the, you're the, the so-called eternal hole in the soul. We try to fill all this stuff until we get satisfied when, in fact, the only thing that can fill an infinite, endless, eternal hole is something infinite and endless and eternal, which would be God. And, you know, you'll find a lot of people who are just constantly going through life trying new shit and and purchasing things and going after the perfect fitness program or the perfect diet program, you know, like in my industry, like once they find God, all of a sudden, all that stuff seems to become less important because they found something that actually fulfills. Yeah. You, you make peace with the void in a way. Right. Right. And so realizing you can't fill the void. In fact, we've been told the void is, is bad, right? It's a strange thing because the part of the country you live in, you know, I used to live up there in Missoula, right down the street from you. And no one goes to Montana and says, look at this giant void. No, they said, look at this beautiful open space, right? You go to northern Idaho. Oh, my gosh. Look at the mountains and the valleys here. We don't say, how can I fill this void as quickly as possible? And yet we do that in our own lives. And what we try to do, here's the pattern that happens to all of us. I'm incomplete, so I'm going to buy things. I'm going to embrace consumers. I'm going to buy things that are going to make me complete or they're going to make me happy. And then we buy the things that doesn't make us happy. You know what I need? I need more things. And then when that doesn't make us happy, you know what the problem is? I need even more things. And of course, that plays out until we have those 300,000 items and you're 30 or 40 or 50. Or we had one lady who was 94 years old who came to our um, San Diego event. We're doing uh, these tour stops right now. And she said, she said, I'm 94. I'm finally simplifying my life for the first time. And so we accumulate for a long period of time. And then what do we do? We think that's going to make us happy when it doesn't. Well, then we get rid of the stuff. And one of the problems is we start chasing happiness through minimalism or through letting go. And that also doesn't make us happy. And then what, what do we do? And we say, well, you know what? The problem was I didn't have the right things. I need better things and more improved things or whatever. And that void remains there the whole time. So minimalism isn't simply about letting go to make you happy. In fact, you could anyone listen to this could go rent a giant dumpster, throw all your stuff in it and be utterly miserable after that because you've just gotten rid of all the pacifiers as well as all of the things that add value to your life. But what you can do by getting rid of the excess is you start to make room. You actually increase the void in a way. You're making room for what's truly important. And then you start asking some deeper questions about what it means to live a meaningful life. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, I want to get into some of the practical nitty gritty because obviously people could read the book until they're blue in the face to wrap their head around the philosophy of of the idea of loving people and uh, and using things, and also the general idea of minimalism. You know, I, I think that by watching your films or reading the books, people are going to learn a whole lot more about the whole idea behind this. But down into the like the practical nitty gritty, man. Um, I've noticed that like you and Ryan, you wear black shirts, and like I think it's like black shirts and jeans, and seems like you have you know generally a, a relatively simple wardrobe. Like if I walked into your closet, is it really like just the same few black shirts and jeans and shoes, like a Steve Jobs type of thing? It is for me. You know, one of our tour stops recently, someone asked me, how many, how many black t-shirts do you own? And my honest answer was one drawer full. I I, I don't know. I don't, I don't really count my things, but 
minimalism is not about a particular austerity. You know, I just happen to wear what's simple for me so I don't have to make these sort of excess decisions. I have I have some black shirts. I have some long short sleeve and long sleeve. I even have a, a button up or two, you know, and and then, yeah, I have a couple pairs of jeans. I keep it really simple. But I know other minimalists who want to wear bright purple, and that's totally fine, too. In fact, in our new stu- podcast studio I'm in right now, you got to see a glimpse of it this morning. We've got this beautiful artwork that is behind us because I think one of the, the amazing things about minimalism is when you strip something down to its essence, to its bones, the bones are the beauty of the thing. So if you're in our new podcast studio, it actually looks like an uh, an art gallery or a museum. We have these beautiful paintings in here from a, a really talented artist. And everything is intentional because the excess is gone. You know, we go to a a museum, the most beautiful spaces in the world, we also don't walk in there and say, oh my God, look at this void. Look at all this empty space. No, we realize that I'm complete, you're complete in an empty room. So anything aesthetically can enhance the experience of life, but it it is not the purpose of life. Okay, so I I get the idea of decision-making fatigue with the wardrobe. I think that's a pretty simple one for people to wrap their head around. And I, I think you can still strike a balance between you know, fashion and minimalism, meaning like, like for me, for example, I discovered this new clothing gear. It's called, um, uh, spiritual narcissist, uh, last year, actually one of my buddies started the company and I never would personally purchase a $600 coat, at least of my own volition. But, um, he sent me one and I tried it and I loved it. And I wound up with a whole like couple of giant boxes of their their gear, so to speak. And that's like what I wear now 90% of the time is just this flowy, hempy, organic, like kind of hippy dippy spiritual narcissist stuff. Cause I like it. It feels good and gives me an excuse to be able to wear my pajamas out to dinner. And yet when people ask, <laughs> I'll tell them it's men's luxury clothing and and therefore it's justified. And and so I think you you can be fashionable and still be minimalist. I kind of like the idea of like going with a like a specific brand like of clothing, like, like Viore or spiritual narcissist, or I don't know, Levi's or whatever. And then just kind of like having that brand be your shtick. And, and for me, that that's something I've been increasingly doing, just giving myself permission just to wear like a certain brand of clothing. And my wife loves it because t-shirts get constantly thrown out, but minimalism with the wardrobe is, is something that I think is, is a pretty simple place to start. What about diet? Um, there's this concept of in the nutrition industry that the more consistent your meals, like same thing for lunch, same thing for, for breakfast. If you're a breakfast eater, maybe the same thing for dinner, same beverages, same snacks actually allows you to maintain better metabolic health because you're guessing a lot less about calories and nutrient density and content. You just become more accustomed to what makes you full and what doesn't. And it also allows you to make meals more quickly and reduces a lot of the decision-making fatigue of diet. I'm curious about you though. Um, I know, and, and I'm fine if you get into this, if you want to, that, that you have some, some specifics that you adhere to for the diet for specific health reasons, but I'm just curious, like what your diet actually looks like and and how, how you comprise or recommend a a minimalist diet. Yeah. I'd be happy to talk about that real quick. Just to circle back on, on the clothing bit, I'll tell you this, the most fashionable people I know are all minimalists. And because a minimalist wears their favorite clothes because they only own their favorite clothes and everything else is excess. And it's been 
repurposed somewhere else, either recycled or donated to someone else who can get value from it. We all have that oversized orange sweatshirt with tassels that's sitting in the back of the closet that we haven't worn since 98. And it's just there collecting dust. And not only is it there in our closet taking up space, but it's taking up space in our psyche, in our mind. It's creating mental clutter, emotional clutter, this internal clutter that's going on inside us. So, yes, minimalism is a way to actually be more stylish in a way. Moving on to, to diets, we uh, did an episode of the Minimalist podcast with, uh, uh, well, two unlikely guests. We, we had Rich Roll. He's a vegan athlete. You, yeah. know, you know Rich. Yeah. And, and we had uh, Dr. Paul Saladino on there. And so... You would think Paul Saladino is the the carnivore MD, MD, right? And so you would think between the two of them, they would have no commonalities whatsoever. The Venn diagram of what they eat at the time was literally 100% plants versus 100% animals. And yet there were so many commonalities between the two of them. And what I learned is a minimalist diet is ultimately about what you remove from the diet, just like with the stuff. It's about what you remove with the stuff. But a minimalist diet is also about what we remove from our lives in terms of what we consume, what we eat, right? And so it's much more about eating real food. That's something that both Rich and Paul agreed on. Eat real food. Don't over or under eat. Avoid inflammatory foods. Keep away from refined oils, right? Steer clear of processed foods. Don't eat foods that make you feel crappy. Um, and, and so yeah, eating organic plants or, or grass-fed meats and then eating or buying local whenever possible. I think these are sort of the fundaments of a minimalist diet. And, and yet that could be applicable to a vegan, to a carnivore, or like 99.9% of us omnivores as well. All right, so check this out. I made a salad last night, Michelin taste vegetables from a personalized farm, meaning I own the farm. It's a vertical farm. I get to choose the seeds that get planted, the produce that gets sent to me. There's no pesticides. It comes direct to my door. I get to nourish my body with what it deserves. And this costs me as little as 69 bucks a month to control my own farm. It's called the Willow's personalized farming community. You get the highest quality plants on earth and Willow is revolutionizing the way we eat. They have these innovative vertical farms that produce the tastiest, cleanest, most sustainable produce on the planet. Now the Willow crops are grown in a totally controlled environment. So members enjoy the full expression of the food. The nuances and the flavor, the texture and the color just burst through to give you this unprecedented eating experience. So it lets you tailor your experience to suit your taste, your wellness preferences. You get to monitor the progress of your produce with each step along the way and all of this is done while minimizing environmental impact so willow grows 250 times more food per acre than a traditional farm and uses 99 percent less water and none of the precious topsoil so throughout their life cycle the crops at willow are never exposed to chemicals or pollutants so this is as pure as produce gets it's super convenient super sexy feels very futuristic and it's fun you get to take part if you go to willow.farm slash Ben and use code Ben20 for 20% off. That's willow.farm slash Ben and use code Ben20 for 20% off. All right, you looking for a job, huh? You want to kind of get out of flipping burgers or repairing fax machines or selling used cars, whatever it is you do right now? Well, come join Ben Greenfield Life, Team Ben Greenfield Life. We're currently hiring. Check out the careers page that I've created for more information. Go to bengreenfieldlife.com slash careers. Ben Greenfield Life is setting 
ourselves itself. I don't even know how to say it, but we're basically creating the most creative and inspirational network on the planet to make people's lives better. We passionately empower people to live a bold, purpose-filled, and adventurous life filled with health, hope, happiness, and love. And it is a hell of a lot of fun to be on our team. So as a part of that mission, our team is, of course, growing and we're hiring. Check out all the open positions at bengreenfieldlife.com slash careers. That's bengreenfieldlife.com slash careers. Good luck spelling careers. Just Google that. bengreenfieldlife.com slash careers. All right, you probably know that the human body is mostly water. What you probably don't know is that everything else in your body is 50% amino acids. So amino acids are like the building blocks of life, essential for health, fitness, longevity. No matter how you like to move, whatever you do to stay fit, amino acids are essential. That's why Keon Aminos is my go-to supplement for just about like everything. It's the Swiss Army knife of supplementation. Uh, when you have a craving, you take it, the cravings go away. When you want to recover fast, you take it, you're less sore. When you have sleep better, you take it and it keeps your appetite satiated at night. It, it just, like the use goes on and on. If you want to naturally boost energy, build lean muscle, enhance athletic recovery. I've had amazing athletes and coaches and trainers text me and be like, dude, what did you put in these aminos? Are they illegal? Do you have steroids in these? No, we do not. It's just pure, clean, essential amino acids. They're that good. The ratios are that dialed in. And you can now save 20% on monthly deliveries and 10% on one-time purchases if you go to getkeon.com slash Ben Greenfield. That's getkion.com slash Ben Greenfield. And they'll get off to the races with the brand spanking new Keon Aminos. And I say brand spanking new because we got a new watermelon flavor and we got a new mango flavor that's going to absolutely blow your mind. Check them out. Getkeon.com slash Ben Greenfield. That's getkion.com slash Ben Greenfield. So I make usually a smoothie for breakfast every morning. It's a variant, but typically it's it's bone broth or kefir or coconut milk or yogurt as the base. And then typically ice for just bulk and volume and to give it that nice icy ice cream-esque texture, some kind of sweetener like stevia or monk fruit, and then typically some superfoods. Like I freeze raw liver and keep that in the freezer. I put a couple chunks of that in my morning smoothie, usually a scoop of like a, like a clean whey protein isolate, a little bit of creatine, blend it up and top it with a few superfoods that I keep in the top shelf of the refrigerator, like spirulina or cacao nibs or coconut flakes or what have you. Lunch is always like a, like a low calorie, but high nutrient density type of meal. Like, you know, pumpkin puree or sea moss gel or like uh, i use these things called miracle noodles which are amazing because it's like having pasta without actually eating pasta and then i'll put like some kind of like a really nice oil on that like andrea seed oil or an extra virgin olive oil side of vegetables and typically some kind of meat that's left over from last night's dinner and then dinner tends to be more widely varied because we cook as a family and typically I'll make a meat dish and my sons will make some kind of a starch dish like sweet potato fries or, or sushi rice or something like that. And my wife will make a lovely salad and then we all come together and eat. And so for, for me, it takes a ton of decision-making fatigue out of my day to be able to have kind of like that same routine. And then it's just sparkling water and, and gum or Zevia and gum in between those meals for you what would be an example of, of what kind of like a, a simple minimalist diet would look like based on, on, you know, the, the fact that I know you've been through a little bit health wise, as far as your diet yeah. goes. Yeah. A few years ago I was down in Brazil and I, um, I got a parasite from the water. I drank some water down there and it was, yeah, it, it was just 
I mean, some of the worst, it was the worst experience of my life. Not only did I have a food poisoning event, but I started developing like a crazy amount of ulcers in my small bowel, like over a hundred ulcers in, in my small bowel. It was, I mean, I, so I couldn't eat anything for a while. I literally, the only thing I could digest was, was meat and, and some white rice. And even then, like it was constant inflammation, right? And so reducing the inflammation was something that was really important to me. It sounds to me like what you're describing with your diet is it adheres to all the stuff we just talked about with eating real foods, not overeating or undereating, avoiding inflammatory foods. It sounds like none of those are inflammatory to you. The refined oil bit, you know, and, and not eating foods that make you feel bad, right? And so um, it that that last bit there about eating foods that make you feel bad, that is highly perspectival, right? Because if you have someone who has 100 ulcers in their small bowel, certain your kale might might knock them out for a day right but for your average person my wife is a a dietitian and a nutritionist and and you know her uh bex and she's you know she can eat a much wider variety of foods than i can now thankfully i've I've gone through three years of healing and i've been able to expand and and so my diet looks very similar to like an audio autoimmune paleo diet right so there's there's you know, there's basic meat and and starches like sweet potatoes or you know, I'd eat Japanese sweet potatoes every day and some white rice. And I tend to fast for about 18 hours a day. And uh, it, what's been really helpful for me is, you know, I was obese at one point back in my teens I, and I lost the weight and I gained it all back in my early 20s. And so I weigh I'm a pretty thin guy now, six to 165, but I weighed 80 or 90 pounds more than I weigh right now. And it was all chin and gut, and I was very unhealthy. And I think the reason I set my gut up for dis-ease was I, um, I was always looking for the quick fix. I was always looking for a solution. And so when I started getting this weird acne on my scalp in my early 20s, I went to a doctor who said, oh, yeah, yeah, we just will give you this benign antibiotic that you'll take daily. And so I took this uh, antibiotic every day, Bactrim, for 12 years. And it totally carpet bombed my gut. Now, it turns out my scalp acne was just a soy allergy. I, I, and even now, if I have a little bit of soy, my scalp will break out. And as soon as I eliminated soy, I was fine. But the problem is, I've, after 12 years of doing that, I set my gut up to be well, you know, just a, a factory of dysbiosis. And so it has been a time for healing. The problem is, and that's why this, this latest book that we wrote, it really is about healing relationships in our life. You know, a relationship with money, our relationship with stuff, our relationship with ourselves, which is another way to say our, our health, mental health, physical health, et cetera. And healing is rarely about the doing. It's often about what you don't do. You know, Ben, if you go break your leg skiing, there's not a whole lot you can do to heal the leg. It's much more about what you don't do. It's not, well, yeah, you need to go out and run four miles a day. That'll heal it quicker. No, no, no. That will often make it worse. And what I've realized is quite often we try to do a lot of things that actually prevent us from healing. And sometimes healing, whether it's your relationship with stuff or your relationship with your family, has to do with stepping back and considering less in different aspects of life. Mm, yeah. Yeah, well, I, I think that, you know, a, a lot of people who are struggling with weight or metabolic health, like that whole idea of simplicity of diet and giving yourself permission to eat the same thing day in and day out is good advice, comma, needs to be balanced with the whole concept of seasonal eating. 
You know, it's it's yeah. like if if there are certain things that that grow in your area that you tend to be accustomed to in the spring or the summer, I think it's actually better to when those things are out of season rather than ordering them from Amazon or whatever other source that you're getting your your crazy superfoods from to instead try to just choose what's local or you know, for example, for us in the fall or winter, I am doing with that lunchtime salad a lot more like bone broth, fermented and canned foods that we've prepared in the spring and the summer, and a lot less of like the fresh veg or the fresh fruit or the fresh produce and the citrusy foods or the avocados and the coconuts, etc. And in the spring and summer, it varies a little bit. And when I travel, like if I'm at a, let's say a, a, a place that that's, um, you know, like a, like a destination hotspot that's warm and tropical, it'll be more, more fruit and more starchy carb just because the body, when it gets exposed to sunlight and vitamin D can handle more carbohydrates and, and, and fruits. And that that's just an example of, of local seasonal eating and how the body responds very well to that type of approach. I interviewed, um, Dr. Dan Pompa on my show about this whole idea of, of like feast famine cycles and seasonal eating. And, and I think that you have to make sure that if you're eating the same thing day in and day out, that you also take into account seasonality. And so it could be like the same general structure of the meal, but different components based on what's growing in season near you. But what about uh, exercise and workouts? Um, yeah. You know, I, I personally have like, well, I have like a Word document that I keep on my computer. It's got like 30 key workouts in it. Just like my favorite workouts that I found over the years. Just to, And 30 sounds like a lot, but that's just, you know, I'm also in the in the fitness world. So for me, that's, that's not a whole lot compared to the apps that have hundreds and hundreds of different workouts on them, et cetera. I have like my one blood flow restriction band workout and my, my three airdyne combined with kettlebell workouts and then my Vasper workout and, you know, my sauna routine, et cetera. And so, you know, when I'm every Sunday night, I sit down and I put together my calendar for the week. And, you know, I do this for, for all the clients who I work with as well. Like I write down all their workouts for that whole week, typically on a Saturday or a Sunday. And then there's just no decision-making fatigue when you wake up in the morning, aside from the fact that if you've had a crappy night of sleep or, you know, you're feeling more sore than usual, you may have to call an audible and kind of adjust the workout to be a yoga session or an easy walk or whatever. But for me, sure. it, it, it's, it's very freeing to be able to say, okay, well, there's all these, you know, amazing, sexy workouts in men's health magazine that I could try on for size and, and, you know, all these new workout tools and, and biohacks and fitness gear. But I like to keep things somewhat simple because the best workout is the one that you're going to do. And often simplicity Amen. and, and even having those workouts memorized and already in your brain. So you aren't having to dick around with your phone at the gym and, you know, or have some magazine or book open trying to figure out which exercises to do that. That can be a, a very freeing way to kind of have a more minimalist fitness routine. But for you personally, have you, do you have any keys that you adhere to when it comes to fitness from a minimalist standpoint? Yeah, I have a daily foundation and then we can build upon that foundation. But the daily foundation does not require a gym. It doesn't require any equipment. It doesn't require anything except me, really. And ideally a pull-up bar, although I can get around that if I go to a local park as well. And so every day, I, I call it my 18-minute minimalist workout. And it is literally push-ups, pull-ups, and squats until uh, I'm exhausted. And uh, so I'll do that every day. T I tend to do it in the mornings. And then I walk on top of that. So thankfully, I live in Southern California, so I can walk pretty much anytime. And, uh, and I'll, I'll, I tend to walk eight plus miles a day. 
And those two things keep me really fit. But also, those are the things that I enjoy doing. And then I can supplement with some weight training once or twice a week on top of that. And uh, I find that it's, well, as you said, incredibly simple. And the, the easier part here is that I tend to do it every day because everyone has 18 minutes a day. I can never have an excuse that, well, I just don't have the time to do this. It's 18 minutes and I can do it in my bedroom while I'm listening to a podcast. And if I want to build on top of that, if I want to keep going beyond 18 minutes, great. But if not, I've set myself up with that foundation for the day. And at age 40, I'm more physically fit now than I was when I was 20. Yeah. Walking is underrated, by the way. That's, that's for me, if I can do like a 30 to 40 minute exercise routine on any given day that kind of pushes me to the edge and, you know, whether it's high intensity interval workout or a strength training routine, I fill in the gaps and just walk everywhere. And like that, that's when I feel at my healthiest, you know, you throw in a little sauna, a little cold plunge here and there, but basically hot and cold, tons of walking, and then 30 to 45 minutes of actual structured workout on any given day. And that's just perfect for me. And, you know, compared to the more, gosh, totally non-minimalist, you know, Ironman triathlon, Spartan race type of workouts I would, I used to have to do with tons of decision-making fatigue and the need for like three different pre-workout blends to even get you going for your second workout of the day. Cause you already did one in the morning and it's time for the afternoon routine. Like it just gets dizzying and exhausting versus <laughs> waking up 30 to 40 minutes, you know, get the thing done. And then the rest of the day is just walking. If you have time, get in the sauna, get in the cold pool. And it's, it's super simple, but it, you know, it's another perfect example of where I think people listening in can free themselves. Like sometimes I, I think what happens is people assume that because there's so much complexity and options out there when it comes to diet or workouts, they just assume everybody's switching things up all the time and has this amazing complexity and, and they're getting magical results from all of that. But ultimately like, the the fittest healthiest people i know like it's it's pretty dang simple and even when it comes to lifestyle i think it was james altucher who i was talking to um and he he said something on the show to the extent of like he likes to podcast he likes to write he likes to read books and he likes to like play monopoly or something like that and he's like and that's all i like to do and I think that that can also be really freeing, just not having to have a ton of hobbies, maybe going deep in just a few, keeping yourself open to options in case there's something you want to dive into, like, you know, trying out Frisbee golf or something like that. But, you know, I think that idea of too many hobbies or too many interests is another example where minimalism yeah. can start to suck the enjoyment out of life because you're just juggling all these things that you kind of sort of want to do, but none are true passion projects. Yeah, we can call it experience consumerism in a way, or experiential consumerism, I'm right? Glad so somebody has a name for it. But what really what we're talking about here is, oh, the stuff didn't make me complete. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to fill up my calendar with all kinds of calendar clutter. And in fact, in our in our culture, what do we what do we say? It's a it's a badge of honor. Oh, what are you up to lately? Oh, I'm just so busy. As though that were a good thing or a status symbol, right? And it's fine if you want to be busy, but whenever I say I'm busy, what I'm really saying is my life is out of control. Everyone else is dictating my time, my calendar, what I get to do with my hours and minutes and days. And so much like James Altucher, who, who you described there, my calendar doesn't have a whole lot of stuff on it. And the reason it doesn't is because 
I say no unless I really, really want to say yes. I get to say yes to doing something. Like having this conversation with you, yeah, that, this is a hell yeah. I want to have this conversation with you. So great. Yeah, well, let's schedule an hour for it. But I, I, that way I know for sure like everything I'm doing is a hell yeah. And if I start to feel that pang of, oh, why am I doing this? Or, man, I can't believe I have to do this. Well, that's an indicator. That's an indicator that I have committed to something And I have to ask myself, why did I commit to it? Is it because I wanted someone else's respect or validation? I needed them to venerate me, so I said yes to their project or or whatever it was. It doesn't mean that person's wrong. It just might mean that that obligation is wrong for me because I have only 24 hours today, and I'd rather spend those hours, also as an extreme introvert, I'd rather spend those hours with just me than being drained by being around a whole lot of other people. And so, yeah, you you talked about simplicity versus complexity. You know, the word complex comes from the Latin root complect, which means to interweave two or more things together. And that's the problem in our lives. We have we've complected our lives. We've interwoven a bunch of obligations and toxic relationships and debt and material possessions and houses and all of these things, mental clutter, emotional clutter. We've interwoven all of that into our lives. No wonder we're so stressed out. No wonder we're so miserable. No wonder we're so discontent. Simple, on the other hand, shares the Latin root simplex, which just means of one, one thing. And so it's funny, right? Because we talk about all of our priorities. A few years ago, the United Nations released their list of 163 priorities. Well, if you have 163 priorities, that just tells me you have no priority at all. In fact, that word priority didn't have a plural until the 20th century, because literally priority means the first thing. So if you have 163 the first things, that's nonsense. Mm, yeah. Um, you know, with, with with this whole minimalism idea, you know, would you say that there are other things in your life that you would classify, you know, in addition to like wardrobe, diet, exercise, decluttering the home that you think is, is pretty dang minimalist relative to the average person, like big wins for you in the minimalism department that may have even surprised you when you incorporated them? Yeah, I think so. You know, so in the book, we talk about these seven essential relationships in our lives because originally we wanted to write a relationship book. But then Ryan and I realized like, oh, wait a minute. We screwed up all of our relationships in our 20s. Well, why is that? It's because we were so focused on the things that weren't actually important. There were all these other relationships we had to heal first before we could heal our relationships with people. And so because we're the minimalist, it sort of starts with our relationship with stuff and and getting that under, under control. But then there's the relationship with the truth. We often lie to ourselves. We tell ourselves these disempowering stories about who we are or who we can be or the world that we need to live in, or I'm supposed to be like this person, or I should do that. I shouldn't do that. These are disempowering stories and they're not rooted in the truth. And then of course, the relationship with the self. So the person you spend the most time with is you. And, and yet the irony of that is if I were to, if I were to meet someone who treated me the way that I treat myself, I would stop hanging out with that person immediately. We beat ourselves up. We treat ourselves poorly. The negative self-talk, the self-doubt, all of these things ruin our relationship with the most important person in our lives, ourselves. Uh, going beyond that relationship with values, 
most people aren't clear with what their values are. Ryan and I identify these four different types of values. It's kind of like if you're building a house, you have foundational values. So everyone has a very similar foundation. It's like health, relationships, creativity, contribution, et cetera, et cetera. We have the same five, six, seven foundational values. All foundations pretty much look the same. But beyond that, you have structural values, right? And, and these are things that make life well, your life unique, right? And so your structural values will determine how your life looks, how your house would look, right? And then we have surface values. Those are sort of aesthetic things, the the things that make life more interesting, hobbies and interests and activities you like to do. And then beyond that, unfortunately, most of us are so focused on this fourth type of value. I call them imaginary values. You know, we, we say that, oh yeah, my health is a value of mine or my relationships are a value. But your real values are however you spend your 24 hours in a day. So if it's incessantly scrolling through TikTok, nothing wrong with TikTok. But if I'm spending an hour or two a day, that just means that is the most valuable thing. That is my priority in the moment. That is what I value the most, scrolling TikTok or Instagram or Facebook or watching TV or whatever it might be. Nothing wrong with those things, but that is the thing I value the most. I may be forsaking the things I actually value. In fact, in the book, we have this those values worksheet where people can sort of work through and better understand those values, not just for themselves, but so they can inter- better interact with the, the partner in their life, their husband, their spouse, their significant other, whatever. Hmm. Uh, beyond, go ahead. No, no, do, do, do go ahead and finish that thought. I, I had one, but I want you to finish that thought. Well, beyond that, I think one of the, the biggest areas here is our relationship with money. So, Unfortunately, we have a ton of debt, a ton of discontent in our country. Why is that? And all throughout the Western world. Well, we're one of two countries in the world that has this 30-year mortgage, right? And now, in fact, in the United States, there's a 40-year mortgage. And we're advertised to more than ever. And so we're made to feel inadequate by corporations so that they can sell us a solution to the problem they've created. I'm not against material possessions. I own plenty of things. I get far, I get a lot of value from those material possessions. The problem is when we think they're going to make us more complete. And the problem beyond that is when we go into debt, which is actually giving up a piece of our freedom in order to acquire things we don't need. You know, we're spending money we don't have to buy things we don't need to impress people we don't like. And and so our relationship with money is totally dysfunctional. The average credit card um, debt in the United States is approaching $16,000 for indebted households. We spend $1.2 trillion a year on non-essential goods. Most people don't even know what that means, a trillion dollars, right? So, so to put that in perspective, if you went out and spent a dollar every single second, it would take you like 31,000 years to go spend a trillion dollars. And if you spent a million dollars every single day since the birth of Jesus, you still wouldn't have spent a trillion dollars by now. And yet we are spending a trillion, over a trillion dollars every year on non-essential goods. We're spending more on watches and jewelry than we are on higher education. So not only are we overspending, we're misprioritizing our spending. And then we're also spending our time in weird ways, and we can never get a refund for misspent time. Hmm. You know, I, I feel like one of the things that's really been helpful for me when it comes to minimalism is simply stopping and slowing down and 
not only just planning out my day, like I talked about how I'll do on like a Sunday night, planning out the workouts for the week, but I, I sit at the beginning of the day and I don't, I don't have a super duper intense, like transcendental two by 20 minutes a day type of meditation practice. But in addition to sitting with my family for about 10 minutes in the morning for morning meditation and five to 10 minutes in the evening for our evening self-examination and meditation, I typically have at the beginning of the day after I've woken up and doing my stretching and everything, I will simply sit in silence for just like three to four minutes, just kind of thinking about what I'm about to do, like what I'm about to go accomplish for the day and how my day is structured and and what activities I'll be engaged in. And what I find is that when I don't do that, I, I get in a checklist mode and I start just just basically hoarding information and engaging in, mm. in a very non-minimalist type of day. But having a few moments of silence at the beginning of the day, and I, I, I think the reason that it seems to work for me is I really think it allows me to get connected to what the most important thing is for the day. And by focusing on those things that are most impactful and meaningful and important, I'm able to say no to and kind of ignore some of the clutter a little bit more efficiently. Uh, do, do you personally do any type of like mindfulness or meditation practice to get yourself into the minimalism groove, so to speak? I don't know that I would call it a practice per se, but yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of silence that interweaves my days. I, a friend of mine once say. I speak only, he, he's a, a real sort of stoic person, and he said, I speak only when it adds more value than silence. And the irony of that is he doesn't speak very much. I think quite often we we like to talk because we want to feel validated. We, we yearn for others' respect, right? And um, that becomes a type of prison, right? Whenever we we need someone else's validation, we need their appreciation, we need their love or their care, or we need them to think a particular way about us. And it's a prison, but the irony of that is if, it, if they think a certain way about us or feel a certain way about us or have a certain expectation about us, those might be prison bars, but those are bars lining their cage, not, not mine. And so I get to walk away from someone else's expectations as soon as we realize the, the sort of facade of it. And, and one of the best ways to do that is to... Yeah, to, to speak only when it adds more value than if I weren't to speak at all. Hmm. Do you, um, when it comes to like social events and things like that, especially living in L.A., you know, I've run into this a lot. You inevitably get invited to a ton of meetups and parties and functions and coffee meetups and brain picking sessions. And, and I... I think that one of the reasons people ask me how I'm so hyper productive, I think one reason for that is I live in Spokane, Washington. There's not like a huge collective of fellow like-minded entrepreneurs or podcasters or, or people who would constantly be like kicking down my door to meet up and also a lot less FOMO because there's just fewer social events going on in general that I feel like I, I need to be a part of or that or that I'd be missing out if I didn't join in on. And I think that's kind of a saving grace for me from a productivity and minimalism standpoint, just living in a kind of a, a town where there's not a whole lot going on relative to a place like, let's say, LA or New York City or Austin or any of these other places where I visit. And I'm like, how do people even do this? When you arrive in a town, your phone just blows up with all these people who just want to meet, meet, meet. Do you, yeah. do you uh, have any tips, especially for, as somebody who lives in LA, for people who, who just need to need to 
say no to social functions more so they can do more of what, you know, Cal Newport would refer to as deep work. Yeah, I'll give you two perspectives. And this is where the other half of the minimalist, Ryan, really comes in. He and I are radically different people, as you know. In fact, if you look at us like on a Myers-Briggs personality test, we're literally exact opposites. I'm an ISTJ. He's an ENFP. But he's also an extreme extrovert. I'm an extreme introvert. And so when we lived in Missoula, Montana for five or six years, even there, he f- constantly found ways to be engaged with the community. He stumbled his way into the lead role of a play, and he had never even been in a play before. And, and so he, he will do all these things. In fact, he really thrives and gets his energy from interacting with other people. So every night he's he has something scheduled for himself because he truly enjoys that. He gets benefit from it. He finds value in those activities. The problem is if I were to assign those same priorities to me, if I were to assign that same need to me, it would make me miserable. And I know this from firsthand experience because I thought I was supposed to be an extrovert. And so throughout my 20s, I, I did a lot of extroverted things with my career and networking events and coworkers and buddies and going out to these events and, and constantly on the go. And it's not there was anything wrong with those things. I think Ryan thrives in an environment like that. But now I simply say no unless I feel so compelled to say yes that it's a no-brainer for me. And so I, I say no to 99.9% of the things that are out there, and, and I really experience the the joy of missing out in the process. Yeah, I think one of the toughest parts for me, you know, still, and, and this is something I'm still trying to wrap my head around and deal with, is a lot of people have my phone number, right? Like, like clients and friends, of course, and acquaintances, and people are, you know, they'll they'll ask me, hey, you know, they'll they'll like text me a PDF of some blood test that they did, and be like, hey, could you take a quick look at this and let me know what you think? And I, it, it's one of those things that would take me just two minutes, right, to open it up and look at it and be like, oh, hey, you know, just just keep your eye on this, and and this is concerning, whatever. But I get like literally over a dozen such texts a day, and I kind of feel like an asshole when I reply, and I'm like. Yeah, please just like go to my website and get a console and that'll you know allow me to to free up time and be able to justify going through all of this. But I think a lot of people just um I, I guess what I'm trying to say is when my phone blows up like that, I think a lot of people don't realize that yeah, this might seem like a tiny little one to two minute thing for me, but it's actually coming from you know a hundred different people a day, and thus it adds up to the point where I could literally just be texting to friends all day, helping them out, or replying to Facebook <laughs> messages from people who have these quick one-off questions. So I I really try and and operate the way that I would want to be treated in situations like that. Like if I have a friend who's let's say a plumber and my toilet is acting funny. I don't text them and be like, Hey, just, just a quick thing. My, my toilet is doing this funny thing. Could you just like, what would you do if you were me? I will literally tell that person, Hey, where, where, where can I go to, to hire you, to pay you to actually come and do this thing for me. And I I think that that's another thing that, that especially for professionals or people who help other people, like, uh, you know, I, I would imagine doctors run into the same thing, right? Their friends asking them about health issues. And it's like, you could spend your entire day, just helping people out for free because it because it feels 
like there's a little bit of angst, right? There's a little bit of hesitation when you're just like, no, I'm sorry, I can't do this because it's to your friend, right? Or to your acquaintance. Right. And that, that's, that's still a pain point for me. Yeah, I think that part of that has to do with what one might call boundaries, right? But I think the other thing is we really care about other people's opinions of us. And it's getting back to that thing. And so you might um, think, oh, I don't want to upset that person, right? And I, I get it because I feel the same way. Oh, if someone asks me for something, and I would say no. Why am I really saying no? Is because I want to be able to say yes to something I find to be more important. But if I say yes to them, it may be simply because I don't want to upset that person. But of course, we know what the truth is. You don't actually have the the true power to change their mood from from chipper to insecure, from from happy to upset, and because. The problem is we've we've outsourced our happiness in a way, right? Without without realizing it, we sort of cling to the admiration of others. It, and, and what's the equation on that? If they like me, I'll be happy. And if they don't like me, I'll be unhappy. Well, that's not what love is. That's just relationship consumerism. And so the question I have to ask myself is like, who told you that you need their approval? Could, even the people closest to me. You know, if it's my family or, or my spouse or my child, who told me that I'd be a lesser human being without their respect, right? No one. That, that's, a, that's just a story that I tell myself. And sadly, I'm correct. If I need someone's acceptance, they will forever wield a rubber stamp over my internal state, right? But when I no longer need their validation, then... I sort of recover that power that I relinquished in the first place. And in a weird way, if I don't need that validation, I reclaim my freedom. Now, you might be asking, well, how is that possible? It's only possible. This is where minimalism comes in. It's only possible by letting go. And the next question is, well, how do you let go of the need for approval? Well, you, you don't need to do anything. The, the letting go is is not about the doing. It's about, you know, so, so maybe a better way to put that is, is letting go is not something you do. It's something you stop doing. You cease clinging to the toxic relationship or you cease clinging to the obligation. You cease clinging to the material possessions. You cease clinging to the need for approval. We stop clinging to that thing we think is going to make us better or more complete. Because in truth, whatever other people think about us, I don't have a whole lot of control over that. And and if, if it's going to make me miserable, I mean, think about it. If you have, the person listening to this has 500 Facebook friends and you try to appease just your Facebook friends, you're going to drive yourself crazy. Yeah, and I guess, you know, if... If, if, if you're concerned about a relationship going south or you offending someone because you're unable to accommodate the quick requests that they're sending you throughout the day, then that's kind of on them. Like if, if they're going to forsake your friendship or be offended because you aren't able to step out and, and do a coffee brain picking session for, for the 18th time that week, it's, yeah. it's one of those things where it's, it's really not your problem. It's their problem if they're offended by something like that. And I, I think you're right that a big part of it, especially for me is like, I'm a people pleaser. 
And I don't like the idea that I turned somebody down or maybe potentially offended someone. But really, ultimately, if, if that person gets offended by me not having the time to address this quick little thing, you know, that's again, it's more on them than it is on me. And I guess it's just that that permission that you give yourself to not have to feel that stress and pressure to please people all the time, which is why I think probably your, your next book should should be something like how to be a minimalist asshole something along those lines. Yeah. But, but in the meantime, love people use things is, is I think a, an even better title. And that, that this, this new book, um, I really liked it. You know, you guys sent me up a copy and, um, we, I, I, I didn't delve into everything in the book, honestly, especially the seven areas that you get into in terms of, of decluttering and minimalizing, but I really recommend it to people. I think it'd be a refreshing read and, and especially needed in this era where we're just, gosh, bombarded all the time with so much stuff. So if you want less stuff and less clutter and less stress and less debt and discontent than a life with fewer distractions, I'd recommend that you, you check out Joshua and Ryan's book. And I'll link to it if you go to bengreenfieldfitness.com slash minimalist. I'll also link to, uh, you, you guys just have a fantastic podcast and I've, I've been on it a few times. So I'll, I'll link to the episodes that I did with you guys and uh, also all of your books over there at the show notes at bengreenfieldfitness.com slash minimalist. Uh, Josh, I can't wait to come down and, and check out the new studios as well. Sounds like you got some good, good minimalist feng shui going on down there. Ben, I can't wait to send you some PDFs via text message. Yes. Send me lots of PDFs, lots of little requests. And if possible, please ask me a few times this week if you can pick my brain or have a quick coffee. That'd be amazing. Uh, that's going to have to be the inside joke. I'm just going to randomly okay. just text you. That's great. Yeah. Thank yeah. you, brother. I appreciate your time. coffee. All right, man. Well, folks, I'm Ben Greenfield along with Joshua Fields Milburn signing out from bengreenfieldfitness.com. Have an amazing week. More than ever these days, people like you and me need a fresh, entertaining, well-informed, and often outside-the-box approach to discovering the health and happiness and hope that we all crave. So I hope I've been able to do that for you on this episode today. And if you liked it, or if you love what I'm up to, then please leave me a review on your preferred podcast listening channel, wherever that might be, and just find the Ben Greenfield Life episode. Say something nice. Thanks so much. It means a lot.